Hello, and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today we've got another really interesting episode for you. We're going back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, and most of our story is going to take place in the United States. Today is episode 21, and we'll be covering Bell Gunness. So before mysteriously disappearing in 1908, Belle will have murdered two of her husbands, a number of other gentlemen, and several of her own children on a pig farm in LaPorte, Indiana. But let's start at the very beginning, because on November 11th, 1859, Brynhild Paltz Stritz was born in Norway. Little is known about her early life, but she was the eighth child and youngest daughter to stonemason Paul Penderson Strutz and Bereed Oldstadter. Now, Brynhild would grow up to be a very physically strong woman. She stood anywhere between 5'7 to 5'9, and it's said that she weighed more than 200 pounds. But when Brynhild was about 21 years old, she made the decision to immigrate to Chicago to live with her sister Nellie and Nellie's husband. They had both arrived in the States a few years before, and Brynhild would also change her name to a more American-sounding name of Belle Peterson. And Belle would marry her first husband, a man named Mad Sorensen, who was another Norwegian immigrant, in 1884. A house owned by the Sorensen family in Chicago would burn down and the family decided to buy a candy shop at the intersection of Grand Avenue and Elizabeth streets in Chicago with the proceeds from the insurance money they collected from the fire. But turns out the business was just not all that profitable. And surprisingly, another fire would break out and destroy the candy shop after only a year. Now, fortunately for the family, the business had insurance and Bell had informed the authorities that a kerosene lamp explosion is what caused the fire. The investigators handed Bell the insurance money, even though they couldn't find a kerosene lamp anywhere in the establishment. So this is the first indication that maybe something isn't quite right with Bell. She's had two fires and collected two insurance payments. And it reminds me of the very apropos metaphor, where there's smoke, there's fire. So because the store inexplicably caught fire, they're able to purchase a new home in Austin, Illinois, thanks to again, insurance money. Now Mads and Belle cared for a few foster children because it appears they're just unable to conceive children of their own. And it's under Belle's care that two of these children will pass away, Alex in 1898 and Caroline in 1896. They both reportedly pass away from colitis. And the symptoms of colitis can include lower abdomen pain and cramps, nausea, fever, diarrhea. And all of these symptoms are also signs of different types of poisoning, specifically strychnine. But regardless, the deaths are ruled um, natural. And again, Bella receives payments from the two children's life insurance policies. And it won't be long until tragedy strikes again, this time on July 30th, 1900. 
because Matt Sorensen will suddenly pass away from a brain hemorrhage. Now, what's really odd is that it's the day or the day that he dies happens to be the day that's both the start of his new life insurance policy, but also the end of his previous one. So it is only this day that Bell could have collected on both insurance policies, amounting to around $150,000 in today's currency. Now, really suspicious. And again, if anyone in your life has a lot of suspicious deaths and collects a lot of insurance policies, uh, it's probably time to turn them into the police because it is never a good sign. And it is always something nefarious. But no charges are brought against Belle, even though Mad Sorensen's family does suspect her and they do want an investigation. It just doesn't happen. With the substantial sum left over after her husband's tragic passing, Belle is able to purchase a farm in LaPorte, Indiana, and she relocates there with three of her foster children in 1901. And it's during this time that she'll reconnect with Peter Gunnies, a recent widower from Norway, as she's getting ready to relocate from Chicago to LaPorte. Now, Gunnies is also a widower and had two young daughters of his own. And it's on April 1st, 1902, that Gunnis weds Belle. So this will be her second husband. Again, tragedy is never far behind Belle because Peter's infant daughter will pass away in the week following the wedding when the infant is alone in the house with Belle and uh, the daughter dies of unknown circumstances. Peter himself will experience a tragic accident in December 1902. He reportedly suffers a head injury after a sausage grinding machine falls from a high shelf in the kitchen, and this is according to Belle. She's once again the target of suspicion, and an inquest is even held. But she's successful in convincing the authorities that the death was simply an accident. And in due course, another life insurance payment is made. Unfortunately, the authorities in Laporte are just simply unaware of the mysterious passing of Belle's first husband. You wonder if they had realized this was the second suspicious death of a husband for Belle, if that would have made any difference. Could dozens of lives have been spared if authorities had realized who Belle really was? But they didn't. Uh, And also, there just wasn't the technology that allowed um, criminal reports or really paper records of any time, any kind to be shared uh, between districts, municipalities, states, that wouldn't come into play until much later. So it's not the authorities' fault, um, but it is something that makes you think. And according to an article by Rennie for allthatsinteresting.com, only Bell's foster daughter, Jenny Olson, appears to even be catching on to what was happening. Allegedly, she tells her fellow classmates that, quote, my mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell a soul. Now, Olsen would disappear not long after that. At first, Belle claims she had just simply moved to California for school. But the girl's body would be discovered in Belle's hog pen years later. At this point, Belle is down two husbands and has been very successful in her MO, killing people and collecting life insurance policies. So she decides to start sending classified ads to three weekly Norwegian language newspapers in the Midwest. 
And this happens really shortly after Peter's passing. And these advertisements would request a decent and trustworthy man to join her farm as a partner. According to Horsepool for A&E, in 1906, one matrimonial ad read, Personal, calmly widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. And Bell's ad did attract the attention of several wealthy middle-aged men. And soon she's frequently spotted on Sunday afternoons riding in carriages, always with a different man. On those occasions, Bell wore her nicest attire and her hair was styled in the newest fashion. She was unrecognizably different from the hardworking farm woman that people around her were used to seeing. Although it's unknown how many men actually replied to Belle's advertising for Lonely Hearts, we do know that a lot of them visited her in the hopes of finding a spouse. And almost always, the men's family just never heard from them again. Belle would readily say that she was acquainted with the men, that they had stayed with her, and she might have even had some of their possessions but she insisted that they had all gone and she never heard from any of them again. Now, before going to see Belle, these men would all engage in almost identical activities. They all gave Belle sizable sums of money from their bank accounts, told few or almost no one where they were going, and then simply vanished from public life. Author Harold Schechter in his book, Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belle Gunny's Butcher of Men explained how Belle was so successful in luring men. He says, like many psychopaths, she's very shrewd in identifying potential victims. These were lonely Norwegian bachelors, many who were completely cut off from their family. She beguiled them with promises of down-home Norwegian cooking and painted a very seductive portrait of the life that they could enjoy. George Anderson is potentially the only man to actually survive his encounter with Belle. Anderson, who came from Missouri, arrived at Bell's farm with cash and plenty of optimism. Yet he was startled one night to discover Bell looming over his bed as he slept. Anderson left right away because of the rabid look in Bell's eyes that shocked him. And it was a decision that very likely saved his life. Now, Bell would make contact with her last victim in 1906. Her ad was discovered by Andrew uh, Helligan in the Norwegian language Minneapolis to Dende. Soon after, Belle and Andrew started writing each other love letters. Like other victims before him, Andrew made the decision to take a shot at love. And on January 3rd, 1908, he relocates to Laporte, Indiana to live with Belle. But then Andrew also disappears. Now, Belle had generally avoided being noticed or suspected of foul play up until this point. But once Andrew stopped responding to letters, his brother decided to demand some answers. Bell told Andrew's brother, Azel, that maybe Andrew traveled to Chicago or even decided to return to Norway. But it doesn't appear that Azel fell for any of Bell's lies. Bell had also at this point started to have issues with her farm worker, Ray. Ray had romantic feelings for Belle and was very jealous of every man who visited her home. It appears that at one point the two were romantically involved, but once Andrew shows up, 
Ray storms off the farm in a jealous rage. Now, Belle visits an attorney in Laporte on April 27, 1908, and explains to him that she'd fired her envious farmhand, Ray. And additionally, Belle asserts that she needs to draft a will because Ray had even threatened to kill her. Everything will come to a head on April 28, 1908. And that evening, a fire will start on Belle's farm. By the time authorities reach the farm, the house is already completely engulfed in flames. Four bodies will be discovered in the wreckage of the home. The headless body of a woman and the bodies of three children. Now the children are recognized immediately as belonging to Belle. At first, it is believed that the woman's beheaded body is indeed Belle. But later, when they're checking records of clothing made for Belle, it's revealed that the deceased body is far smaller than Belle. She had a height of around five, uh, five feet, eight inches, and was a tall, powerful woman who could weigh up to 200 pounds. And the headless body was at least 50 pounds lighter and five inches shorter. Now, Andrew's brother, Azel, arrives in Laporte from South Dakota during the course of the investigation. And he informs the sheriff that he thinks his brother, Andrew, had met with foul play at the hands of Belle. He adds that Andrew had responded to her marriage advertisement that she had published in a Norwegian language newspaper. And Azel watches as um, men are observed searching for Belle's skull in the wreckage. And instead, what they find is eight men's watches, various bones, and human teeth instead. And this further strengthens his suspicion of foul play. He then proceeds outside the wreckage of Bell's house and he conducts a solo search of the land. He then yells at workers to begin excavating the garbage pit in Bell's hog pen. It's there that they discover four remains that had been expertly disassembled and wrapped in oilcloth when they start to turn over the dirt. And they find Andrew's remains among the dead. It's after this discovery that uh, a farmhand named Joe will reveal information that just couldn't be disregarded. He informs the sheriff that Bell had instructed him to transport wheelbarrow loads of soil to a sizable area encircled by a high fence where the hogs were being fed. Joe reported that there were numerous deep dirt covered depressions in the earth. Bell had informed Joe that these holes had been filled in with trash. Now he fills in the depressions because she wanted the ground to be level. And at the same time, a number of farmers who had driven by the property at night claimed to have spotted Belle digging in the hog pen with a shovel. The body of Jenny Olson, who had gone missing in December 1906, was discovered on May 3rd, 1908, when the sheriff took a dozen men back to the farm and started digging. Then they discover little bodies of two unnamed children. Now, one body after another is found in Bell's hawk pen as the days go on, and the grisly job persists. According to Alexander for an article for Legends of America, the names of the bodies who could be identified are Ole B. Bugsberg of Wisconsin, who vanished in May 1907. Thomas Linbo had left Chicago and went to work as a hired man for Bell three years earlier. Henry Gerholt of Wisconsin, who had gone to Wedbell a year earlier, taking out $1,500. So 
So a watch corresponding to one belonging to Gertholdt is found with a body. Olaf from Chicago, John Moe of Elbow Lake, Minnesota, and his watch is found in Ray's possession. Olaf Lindblom from Wisconsin, and Benjamin Carling of Chicago, Illinois. And he was last seen by his wife in 1907 after telling her that he was going to Laporte to secure an investment from a wealthy widow. He had taken with him $1,000 from an insurance company and had borrowed money from several other investors. In June of 1908, his widow was able to identify his remains by the contour of his skull and three missing teeth. The unresolved questions and mysterious bodies that would appear from these ruins would garner media attention throughout the Midwest. From neighboring Midwestern states, more reports of missing men started to arrive, and families showed up from all across the region to claim the dead. The majority of the bodies discovered on the premises were unidentifiable. The precise number of people discovered on Bell's property is uncertain due to primitive recovery techniques but 14 of Bell's victims were stitched together with some teeth, bones, and timepieces remaining. But there may have been as many as 40 people murdered. Ray will go to trial for murder and arson on May 22, 1908. And his case rested solely on the claim that the body discovered inside the home was not Bell's. So he entered a plea of innocent to all charges. And Ray's attorney gathered proof that the discovered bridge work, so Bell's body was partly identified because a piece of bridge work was found next to her body. And the dentist who did the work identified that as belonging to Bell. But Ray's attorney claims that the bridge work could have been planted at the scene. And Ray is eventually found guilty of arson, but found not guilty of murder. And he receives a term of two to 21 years in prison in Michigan City, Indiana on November 26, 1908. But Ray will pass away there on December 30th, 1909 from tuberculosis. Before he died, Ray made a deathbed confession. So he confessed to killing 42 people with Bell. Uh, he made the confession to a fellow prisoner. He said Bell would poison their coffee, smash their heads in, cut up their bodies, and stuff them into sacks. And Ray was the person who buried the bodies. Now remember, Bell has not been seen. She's presumed dead. But many report seeing Bell, or Hell's Bell, as she's known in the media, throughout the 20 years that pass uh, since the fire. None of the sightings are ever verified. And it's still completely unknown what happened to Belle. It is quite possible that Belle faked her own death and fled with little difficulty. She could have relocated to a new city or state, taken on a new identity, and remained undetected. The absence of technology at the time made Belle's escape considerably simpler than it would be now if the same crime was to be committed. Strangely enough, a woman named Esther Carlson is detained in Los Angeles in 1931 for attempting to steal money from a Norwegian-American man and then poisoning him. While awaiting trial, Esther passes away from tuberculosis. Nonetheless, many people couldn't help but notice how much she resembled Belle. She even had a photo of children who remarkably resembled Belle's 
kids. A group of forensic anthropologists and graduate students from the University of Indianapolis excavated the headless body from its grave on November 5th, 2007, with the consent of Bell's sister's descendants. And they did this in order to determine or attempt to determine who the body belonged to. At first, it was believed that a letter's sealed envelope flap, which was discovered on the farm, might have had enough DNA to be compared to the body. Unfortunately, not enough DNA was collected, leaving the question and the mystery unsolved. Did Belle escape or did she perish in the fire? Unfortunately, we'll likely never know the answer. And it's one mystery that will probably remain unsolved. This brings us to the end of the episode and the life and crimes of Belle Guineas. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion, you can find us on Instagram at historical true crime pod. You can also send us an email at historical true crime pod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.